No, okay. no, I'm not there. I'm still green run level. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Open Space for May 20th, 2019. Uh, I'm Fraser Kane. There, that's an introduction. So anyone who's listening to this doesn't have to hear the just uncomfortable silence of me wrestling with computer equipment. Uh, but as always, until I know this is happening, I need some kind of confirmation of my existence. So it uh, looks like I see some confirmation of our existence. So, hey, everyone, uh, back to having a guest. This week, I've got uh, Dennis Taylor, author of the Bobiverse series. We are Bob. We are Legion. Did I get that right? We are Legion. We are, Legion, we are, Bob. We are Bob. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I said I'm a huge fan, and I've already clearly messed it up. Now, I want to apologize in advance. We're getting a bit of a um, a buzz, which I think is coming from a feedback from uh, Dennis's computer we can't fix it he is strapped for technology where he is uh so uh we'll have to just go with go with this but he's gonna do most of the talking and i won't echo back into it so there we go yeah, conditions are primitive here yeah exactly yeah yeah some kind of mountain retreat so why don't you uh, give everyone an introduction who you are what you do Hi, I am Dennis Taylor. Um, my pen name is Dennis E. Taylor, because there are a lot of Dennis Taylors out there. Um, I'm uh, the author of the Bobverse series, as mentioned. Uh, we are Legion, we are Bob. I didn't want to screw it up. Yeah. Uh, for We Are Many and All These Worlds. Uh, also, more recently, Singularity Trap and Outland, which has just come out and is doing quite well. Um, I'm a retired computer programmer. And now full-time author. So, but the the actual order of when you wrote these is a little different, right? You actually revised Outland more recently. Yep. Yeah, Outland was my very first attempt at novel writing. Um, and when I was writing it, I wasn't entirely sure if I was even going to try publishing it or anything. So it was a, it's kind of a trial balloon, I guess, and a learning experience. Um and then once uh, Legion took off, uh, Audible offered me a contract on it. So I thought maybe I'd better edit the thing a little bit. So it was taken off uh, Amazon, edited drastically, and is now going back up. Uh, and how much did you dramatically edit it? Well, the basic story is the same. I've changed one or two things. I've added one small little subplot. Um, the, the crooks are different. They're a little more believable. Mostly it's about writing style. Um, as I said, it was my very first attempt at writing. I had no clue. Um, I was learning as I went. And uh, four books later, I have a bit better idea, uh, you know, of how to do characterizations and so forth. So I was introduced to the the Bobiverse series by my Astronomy Cast co-host, Dr. Pamela Gay, who was a huge fan uh, even before me. And she was like, knowing how much I love about space and astronomy and von Neumann probes and artificial intelligence and um, mega engineering at an enormous scale, she said, this is like the perfect book for you, plus written in a, a kind of uh, hilarious style. Um, like, where did that come from? I mean, people who, I mean, I have given and, and suggested that book to everyone who I can get my hands on, and they have all loved it. Everyone has read it. My wife has read the series. Uh, I've loved the series. I've recommended it to my father, my son. Everybody loves this book. Like, what went into that? Where did it come from? Well, um, I've been reading science fiction for 50-plus years. Uh, very little else except science fiction, um, you know, the occasional Dan Brown or something like that. But but uh, it's almost an exclusive diet. Um, and, you know, 50 years of, of reading a particular genre, you, you pick up uh, the style, you pick up the expectations, you pick up a lot of ideas. Um, in some cases, uh, you pick up ideas that you wish the author had done differently or had gone in a different direction with. And you say, you know, if I was writing this book, I would do this and that and the other thing. And um, when I started writing 
we are legion, a little bit of that crept in. Um, I mean, some of the the ideas. I mean, this this idea in the in the series of of essentially von Neumann probes, right? This idea of of artificial intel artificial intelligence, which is using the resources of a solar system to expand itself exponentially and proceed to colonize, as it were, um, you know, explore, um, but, you know, the entire Milky Way galaxy, right? I mean, in a pure exponential computer science standpoint, it is like this, I don't know, like, you can sort of imagine it's like a machine, right? That it's just like working to turn the entire Milky Way into raw resources. And yet you humanized it which I thought was great. So tell me, like, you know, I'd love to hear sort of your thoughts about how those processes came together. Um, okay, the first thing I have to mention is that I, I like to think of myself as a, uh, a plotter, as a, pro, as a writer, but I'm lying to myself. I'm very much a pantser. Um, there's a little bit of, of pre-plotting in there, but mostly it's discovery writing. Um, I'd also love to be able to claim that I had the entire Bobiverse trilogy mapped out. Obviously you did. Started. Yeah. You could Not tell that there was foreshadowing right in the beginning. You could see it all the way through to the end. Yeah, but I had a I had a vague idea of where I wanted to go, but it was very much an iterative development process. Also, I should mention that I had uh, about two and a half books written before the first one was published. So there was a lot of opportunity for the for the development process. Um, we Are Legion started out, <coughs> excuse me, as, um, as a book based on uh, uh, World Out of Time by Larry Niven and The Ship Who Sang by Anne McCaffrey, both of which are, are books that I just loved when I read them. And I thought, I've always thought the idea of being able to just have your own spaceship and take off and do whatever you wanted was a great thing. Um, the next step is rather than being biological, become you know a cybernetic entity, then you don't have to worry about radiation, you don't have to worry about aging, you don't have to worry about any of the, the problems that you might have um, from being biological. And uh, you can replicate yourself. Now we've got von Neumann probes, right? It, it was, like I said, it was a very iterative uh, process. For instance, um, my first version didn't have the VR. And uh, I got about halfway through writing We Are Legion, and I realized that what I had was a book full of talking heads without the heads. Um, it was not visual. So I had to do something about that. So I went back and added VR so that the Bobs could, you know, sit in libraries and talk to each other and throw things at each other and stuff. Um, my editor, I can't remember if it was my editor or my agent, actually, but one of them suggested that the Bobs should have different personalities. Yeah, I was going to wonder about that. Yeah, so I went back and I started uh, tweaking, you know, each particular clone and giving them something different. Um, it just, it went like that. I, I, I got through um, partway into book three and I thought, well, you know, it'd be great if I had this. So that I went back to book one, added it, and, you know, pushed that through the, the uh, plot. By the time I was finished, I had all these threads that pretty much came together at the end. But like I say, I it was not pre-planned. Did you find, like when I think about ex exponential uh, exploration, exponential development, I mean, it is really hard to then put any kind of constraints on this. Did you, did well, you find that that was sort of challenging for you to not just have them <laughs> within years dominate? That's one of the reasons why the Bobs turned out to be very reluctant cloners. Um, they they don't like cloning, and that slows them down. Uh, printers slow them down. Resource scarcity slows them down. Um, too many demands on their time slows them down. It, absolutely, you have to place some kind of limit on exponential development. Otherwise, you have a, a universe full of paper clips. But... Uh, you know, in, in practical terms, um, there always is some kind of a bottleneck. And eventually you hit it, and then you find out what, what your limiting factor is. 
uh, in the case of the bobs, like I say, it's it's uh, printer turnaround times and uh, resource scarcity. And a, you know, I don't want to go into too much detail for people, but there was definitely a overarching deadline that required that, that they had a set amount of resources to try and move around to come up with solutions to deal with the problem. Once yeah. the deadline was met, then I can't even imagine what they would get up to in the far future. Well, in books four and five, actually, you'll find out. Books four but, and five? Did you just? Yeah. What? No. Yeah. Currently in the works. Awesome. I had yeah, no idea. Yeah. The next uh, book is actually a duology uh, it's because it's too long for, for a single book. Um, working title is The Search for Bender. And uh, the Bobiverse has continued to grow, but spoiler alert, the Bobs are still reluctant cloners. So there aren't as many of them as you might expect. Um, so then talking a bit about like how much of like leading edge science, astronomy, physics, things like that made its way into the, into the books. As much as I could manage. Um, the, for instance, the, uh, distances and transit times are all accurate. Uh, I actually pulled down some files from astronomy websites and created myself a 3d map so that I would know the actual distance between any two actual stars. Uh, I've tried to be as accurate as possible with the uh, stellar classifications of the suns. Um, I calculated the time that it would take at 1G or 2G acceleration or whatever uh, to get there, allowing for time dilation and everything like that. Uh, I actually did a, a spreadsheet and then later on I uh, wrote an app to make sure that I kept track of everything. Yeah, I mean, you even had to deal with the amount of like the communication lag with people in in high velocities and what the the lag would be for people attempting to interact with them, which I thought was great. Yeah. Plus, until they came up with the SCUT technology, of course, they were communicating uh, using radio, and that has a lag time going between stars as well. Yeah, for 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 years. So going through this process, then, I mean, most people. You know, if they can make it their way through one book, they don't ever want to write another book. So, uh, you know, what did you learn about yourself writing this book? Um, I like writing. Yeah? You're like one it, of those rare people that likes to write and, and can get it done. Well, the interesting thing, and this was a surprise to me, but the process of writing feels very much like the process of programming. If you like programming, you'll like writing. It's the same kind of creative process. It tweaks the same part of the brain yeah. and programming. So there it is. Yeah. Um, now I, I, uh, I've, I've done a couple of books and I, I don't want to do them anymore. I'm, I'm in the definitely liked having written camp. Oh, like exercise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so then, like, I'd love to sort of hear your thoughts sort of on the current state of science fiction. Uh, do you think that, you know, where do we stand to the golden age, do you think, from, from your reading of science fiction? Well, actually, I, I commented on this on uh, a video that I, Isaac Arthur asked me to uh, put in a, a, a brief um, vocal intro for, but... Um, the wonderful thing about the golden age was that there were really no constraints. I don't know if you've ever read Edmund Ham Hamilton's Captain Future series. No. Okay. Every planet in the solar system was habitable. Right. Right. There were, there were native Jovians who were humanoid. There were native Venusians who were humanoid. There were even uh, Pluto Plutonians. I don't know. Uh, who were humanoid and, and go figure at a couple of degrees above absolute zero, but that's the way it was. Um, you had nine planets, you had nine native humanoid species. There were no constraints on what you could do in those days. Um, and now people know more science. Um, in general, we know more science. It's a lot more difficult to pull off a real, I guess, what we call science fantasy story. So Science fiction now tends to be more hard science fiction. And uh, 
not necessarily anything wrong with that, but it, I think it does constrain the genre a little. You still get people going off in crazy directions and, and there's some wonderful science fiction out there, but it's harder. It's harder to do that. But it, I mean, it feels to me in reading your work, like you wanted to tell a good story. You wanted to tell it in an entertaining way, but I, it, it definitely feels like you made sure to do the work to not, I don't know, like gloss over the parts it required being scientifically accurate. I mean, obviously we don't and may never have any kind of faster than light um, communications method, but you went that way to have a, to be able to tell a story. And that's, you know, and I, I personally don't really care, you know, like, I will definitely mentally fact check the science in various things, but I don't get too worked up about it. Yeah. Um, adding science fiction technology is something you have to do carefully. Um, you have to add it in such a way that it's internally consistent and doesn't break any of the rules that we already know. Um, for instance, if somebody wants to write um, a spaceship, that's great. But if they assume a Newtonian universe, then any good science fiction reader is just going to throw the book against a wall. Um, you have to, you know, you have to shine a light on the fact that you're going around Einstein, right? Um, just things like that. If you if you ignore the science too much, you end up with science fantasy, and you may or may not pull that off. And do you think that? I mean, do you think that's worth worth the risk? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm into about a third of the way into Outland now and sort of I'm starting to get a pretty good sense now of, of what the science fantasy is. Um, you know, how, what's your take on how to go about that? Well, I write, I write the kind of books that I write. Um, somebody else, you know, might write more of a, of a Star Wars-y thing, um, you know, where they're a little more fast and loose. Uh, and that's their choice. And if it works, if you can tell a good story and if you can sell that story, you know, good for you, good on you. Um, it's not about whether or not you should or shouldn't or whether you can or can't. It's whether or not you can pull it off. I got a couple of questions coming from people watching right now. One, it comes from uh, Larry Beckham. Have any film people bought an option to We Are Legion, We Are Bob? Uh, I, it has been optioned. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the option is up in September and there haven't been any bites, so they may or may not renew it. It's renewable for another 18 months, but you don't know until the last minute. It's interesting, though. I mean, you see Game of Thrones coming to an end. Um, you see what's happening with, um, uh, you know, other sci-fi series being adapted and, and picked up. Um, it seems like a book that would be relatively a series that would be relatively straightforward to do. I'm, I'm trying to, I mean, there'd be a lot of computer science, but the, you know, you could have the same actor play a lot of the roles. That would be a time saver, right? Yeah. But you better get him in an iron clad contract. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, what uh, have you, have you picked any actors in your mind? There must be somebody. Uh, you know, they, they had a discussion, um, about that on fans of the Bobiverse, actually about who they would have playing Bob and, and some of the other characters and stuff like that. And I followed a lot, followed it along and, and wasn't thinking too much about it one way or the other. And then somebody suggested Ryan Reynolds for Bob. And that's like a, a mind worm. I cannot get him out of my brain now. Yeah. Um, I think because of, uh, oh, oh, my mind just went blank. Um, what is the movie that he just did? Uh, Detective Pikachu? No, no, not Pikachu. Oh my God, no, no. You mean um, Deadpool? Deadpool, right? right? Yeah, that's that's great. That's uh, mine goes completely yep. flat. Um, but yeah, and I don't know why, and I don't know if he'd actually be good at it, but uh, it's it's stuck in my mind now. But I think there's real value to optioning a script or optioning a series of books like yours like the expanse series where someone has already done the heavy lifting and thought through the plot and thought through the ramifications and talked to fans and heard the feedback and learned where maybe some parts didn't work as well as other parts 
you would think that 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 would be a no-brainer for some production company, especially. I mean, it's sort of the same thing that happened with The Martian, with Andy Weir in The Martian, that it's just it's ready to go. Feels yeah. Like. Yeah, The Martian is the gold standard for science fiction movies, that's for sure. Um, I think the problem isn't so much that uh, Legion or any other particular story is is so good as a potential series, as that there are so many other possibilities as well. Um, it's, it's a crowded market. There are a lot of uh, people with a lot of scripts looking for a limited number of production companies and, and directors to uh, produce their, their, their story. I, I think also there are sort of these tentpole, gigantic blockbuster projects that gobble up budget and cast a wide shadow, like the whole rise of comic book movies, you know, as, as mm -hmm. the latest Avengers movie is about to surpass or has already surpassed what avatar so it's now the most highest grossing movie of all time like that is what the movie studios are looking to bet on but i think with the television shows the netflixes things like that there's real value to building you know i mean just adapting something that worked and i think that i think that books go into tv series they don't make good movies mm -hmm. oh yeah it, just about everybody who's commented on uh, the legion series thinks that it would be better as a Netflix miniseries or something like that rather than a movie because trying to fit all the story arcs and subplots into a movie you'd, you'd lose something yeah I don't disagree with that <laughs> yeah I mean you would love I mean, you'd love to see it on the screen yeah yeah what well, any old way yeah uh, flick series tv series uh movie I don't care whatever works uh, but you know <clears throat> excuse me sorry Part of the problem with Legion might be that it's a little cerebral. Um, there's a lot of philosophy in there. There's, there's, um, it's, it's thought provoking and that's great for a book, but it might be hard to translate that into a series or sorry, into a visual medium is what I should have said. Um, I think Singularity Trap would make a better movie than Legion. And I think Outland would make a better TV series. Right. Um, more so what were some, I guess, some topics, some stuff that you wanted to get into the into the series that maybe weren't able to make it in? In Legion? Yeah, or uh, did everything make it in? No, I think everything made it in that, that I wanted to say. Um, because it's an open-ended series, there was no real pressure to shoehorn in every possible subplot that I could think of because there's always more books. So then let's talk a bit about, about Outland and, and this series. So which are the books that are coming out for this one? You've got the first one already. There's going to be more? Yeah. Uh, the contract with Audible was for a two-book deal, uh, Outland and Earthside. Earthside's about a third written and has been about a third written for about four years now. Uh, that's that's just the way life went. Um, I started writing the second book and then I decided to switch over and write Legion instead. And then once Legion took off, um, of course it's been a roller coaster ride and uh, Earthside's just been set aside, but now I've got to do it. I've got a contract. <laughs> right. Well, what's your like writing process? I, um, I'm a binge writer. I will sit down when the mood strikes me and I'll hammer away for hours especially if I have uninterrupted time out on the patio. That's my favorite place to write when it's warm. Um, and, uh, well, I wrote um, Singularity Trap, I think, over the course of about three weeks, uh, just about the entire book. Wow. And, and then I spent months going back and tweaking. So I, I binge, and then I spend a lot of time working on the details. So you you don't have any like routine. You don't, uh, you know, set yourself some hours and sit down and write. Yeah, it would be wonderful if I was that disciplined, but no. Yeah, that's. Uh... I am technically semi semi retired, so <laughs> yeah, I, good luck I with that. really yeah, 
I don't really want to think of this as a day job. So I don't do a 40 hour week or anything like that. I set myself a certain amount of progress that I want to make every week, but when it happens or where it happens, eh. Yeah. I, uh, it's, it's interesting to me. I mean, I think anybody who, who is a professional creative person, this is something that they wrestle with. Um, Brad McGashit is asking, have you ever experienced writer's block? And if so, would you get back on the, how would you get back on the creative train? Do you have an opinion on writer's block? I have a, I have one, I, but we'll get yours. I don't think I've ever experienced true writer's block. Um, from reading up on, on what some people go through when they're having what they consider to be writer's block, I'm thinking, wow, you know, I would just hate to go through that. I've had periods when. Yeah. Sorry, please continue. <laughs> my, my wife just got home. Didn't realize I was doing a show. Oh. Okay. Well, I'm expecting the, the dog to jump up on me anytime now. So we're probably in the same boat. Yeah. Um, I, I've had periods where the work is slowed, you know, where I'll go several weeks without doing anything or something like that, or, or where I feel like I'm stuck on a point. Um, but it's not, it's not writer's block. It's not, you know, I don't want to characterize it as being the same level as what some people go through. Yeah. It's, I mean, for me, it's, I'm like at a certain point you have to get over that whole concept of, of letting your work happen when you're feeling productive you have to do the work even when you're not feeling productive, when you're not feeling creative, right? For me, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I laugh that I don't want to write another book, but I write all the time. I write videos and I, I write tons of, of stuff for, for Universe Today. And you, I just have to sit down and turn on my Pomodoro timer and just start grinding away on on the various tasks that are that are in front of me. And, it's, and then I, what I find for me is I'll get – 10 minutes into it. And I'm like, I'm having a great time. This is so much fun. Even though I was having so much trouble just getting started. Oh yeah. I definitely have that problem. Getting started is 90% of the battle. Yeah. Once you get a flow going quite often, it's uh, oh, I just noticed the refractor in the background. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway. Yeah. Once you get started uh, and the flow gets going, it's almost hard to stop. But one of the, the nice things that I have, and I think it, it sounds like you also have, is uh, you have a bunch of different things you can be working on. And if you just can't make any progress on one thing, well, there's this other thing that needs doing. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you look at how much time, say, if, say you want to write a book, a book is 100,000 words, you can write when you're in sort of pure free flow, you could probably write about 500 words an hour pre-edited. Um, or even a little faster. So you could write a book in about, say, 200 hours of writing, which is, say, an hour a day for a little over half a year. So it's like, it doesn't actually take that much time. It's it's the getting started on that hour each and every day. Or binging it and sitting out on your deck and getting the whole thing done in three weeks or something, which sounds yeah, like and. But that depends on how well you have the story mapped out in your head when you start. Um, I taught myself to touch type. So I can touch type 50, 60 words a minute when I get going. And if I know what I want to say, I literally am, am sitting there hammering away almost like I'm taking dictation. Yep. I, I, I free associate when I write. I do not backspace. You know, I don't go back and, and correct bad grammar or anything like that. I just type. And, uh, you know, first draft is crap kind of thing. And that's great. It gets the plot down. It gets the major points down. And then the editing comes in, and that takes a lot longer than, than the uh, binge writing. And, I mean, the way that you are coming up with these ideas later on and then refactoring them back into the story, I mean, that just – Again, from a computer standpoint, that's that's tough. Um, and from a writing standpoint, I can't even imagine the implications because you've literally got to read your whole book again and go, how did this change? How did that change? How did this change based on this new decision that I decided to make thanks to my editor? Yeah, I, I think that probably my career in programming helped with that 
because it's similar problems you when that you run into when writing a large complex series of programs you have to find ways to remember what's happening over here and how it relates to what you're doing over there it's it's just part of the same process um uh nancy uh Ackerton, oh sorry uh uh, Nancy Graziano asks, um, as someone with a technical background, how difficult was it to tap into your creative side to develop the plot, characters, twists, settings, etc.? As a tech writer with an engineering degree, I've wanted to write creatively, but I've had a problem getting creative. I don't want to overgeneralize because I, I don't know, um, you know, what her skills, talents, and, and so forth are. Um, in my case, what I found was that I had the, the skills and talents that I needed. I just hadn't ever tried to use them. I, I, I guess it's, it's the only way I can put it because I mean, I, I started writing in my late fifties and, you know, it, it took off right away. So obviously I do, I had been not doing something for 50 years that I could have been doing. Yeah. Um, does that, uh, do you think though, having used your method, I mean, it sounds, it feels to me like you do, uh, admire the skills of the plotters. Mm -hmm. Do you, have you taken a crack at, at, at sort of mixing up your methodology for working on a book? I'm trying to become more of a plotter with every book. Um, every time I do it, I learn a little. Uh, and every time I start on a new book, I try to go a little more into getting the map down before I start. Uh, it's it's slow. I don't know that I'll ever be a real thoroughgoing plotter. I know some people who who have each chapter named, um, and you know the the action that happens in that chapter thoroughly described before they even start writing. I don't think I'll ever get to that point. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's something that I've never, the kinds of books that I've done have never required, like I've, I don't do fiction, I've done nonfiction, and it's never been required to plot something out. But I would say that that not doing that right would make me not want to take it on because because I admire a well-crafted plot so much. And it's that idea of sort of the, uh, just the gap, you you have good tastes and so you know what well-formed plot looks like. Mm -hmm. And so when you are unable to do it yourself, then you just, you know, you have to struggle with not being willing to get any better. Well, we all have ways in which we fall short of, of what we'd like to be able to do. I mean, Agatha Christie mysteries, or that type of genre, you know, where you have this this really weird murder, and the detective has to figure it out, and there are all these blind alleys and 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 false starts and stuff like that, and then the actual murder turns out to be something really weird involving a, a pig's bladder and right. and like that. I don't think I could ever write that kind of book. I could right. not come up with the intricate kind of plots and twists and various ways of killing people without being obvious about it that are necessary to write that kind of book. But I haven't spent a lifetime reading that kind of book. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think there's a certain amount of, of internalization that goes on when you read a particular genre. So I write science fiction and I have no trouble writing science fiction because I've been reading science fiction. Have you read the Three Body Problem trilogy yet? I read the first book. Okay, yeah. So the first book is a bit of a slog. Um, some cool ideas, but it sort of hard. You know, you've sort of. It's a, almost uh, a very tough story to get through, and a lot of political, sort of uh, Chinese things that I think make sense from a person who lived through some of these revolutions and stuff. Book two and book three are mind-bending. They are just uh, just a whole other world, and I think they they definitely profit from from clearly there's some thought going into it just in, in sort of over the long term, right, to plot this out. 
and especially the third one. Third one is just bonkers, crazy, and yet does hold together. So I, I, I highly recommend. I was going to get into a conversation with you about those books if you had read them, but if you haven't, uh, then all I can do is highly recommend that you read the next two. The first one is fine. The second one is incredible, and the third one will just blow your mind. Yeah, um, this is this is sad to say, but since I've become an author, I have been reading a lot less science fiction than I used to, and also watching a lot less TV. But that's a good thing. Um, I read a lot more nonfiction now because I'm spending a lot more of my time doing research. Um, even if it's not for a specific book, uh, for instance, I've I've just finished reading a couple of books on uh, economics, and because I have some ideas for something in the future that may or may not happen, but it's still research, but it's nonfiction. Yep, and it takes up my time, and it's time that I would have in the past spent reading fiction. So I have to be very careful about what books I pick to read. Yeah, it's it's funny. I like when I was a teenager, when I was a kid, you know, I would read science fiction for fun and read tons of it for fun. And now as life gets busy and it's the same thing that, that all blurs the line, you know, I can read a, a, a book on exploring the solar system by Robert Zubrin and it is research. And my brain is unwilling to recognize it as, as, as an entertaining read for me. It definitely, you know, it feels a bit more like work because I'm doing research. I'm thinking about the implications of what I'm doing, that this story, this this idea could turn into a, a video that I'm going to work on later on. So it's uh, I can see how sort of the more work you do in science fiction, the less time you get to chance to spend and the less almost uh, pure joy you get because now you're starting to kind of think about it from a almost like a career standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Everything, everything is, is tinged with the question, you know, is this going to be useful? Yeah. Turn this into something. Yeah. I, I just tore through a nonfiction book on perennials for my garden. Page turners couldn't put it down. I read through the whole thing really quickly because it had nothing to do with anything that I could use for work and about right. what I could put into my garden. Um, uh, but uh, so one thing that I found interesting, is it the same narrator on Outland who did the, uh, the We Are Legion series for, for Audible? Yeah, Ray Porter. Um, as far as I can tell, there are some exceptions, but generally speaking, once Audible has matched up an author and a narrator, they stick with it, you know, unless something happens. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I've probably got Ray Porter until one of us retires. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he did a great job in the in the Weird Legion uh, in the Bobiverse books, and uh, and in fact, I'm I'm finding that a little confusing with this one as I listen to it because um, it's like uh, it's it's the same character, it's the same person, same sound, same, same. sound, yeah. And so yeah. he's you know, and he, and he does a great job of affecting all these different accents and all these different personalities. And yet, I just keep getting taken back to the to the Bobiverse when I hear him say your words. Well, it's it's even more of a problem if you also uh, read Peter Klein books, uh, no. because he also uses Ray Porter. And uh, oh, really? Mabry, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, you know, it, uh, Ray does a lot of a lot of different authors, and uh, if. If you happen to read two or more of those authors, uh, yeah, you, there can be some crossover. And you're thinking, wait a second, that was the guy from The Fold. No, no, that was the guy from Singularity Trap. Um, let's face it, Ray's only got so many voices. Um, but, I mean, even having someone read out your words and, and do some level of, of narration and even doing voices for the different characters, that's bordering on a radio play version of your work that's got to be pretty thrilling to hear it done that way mm -hmm. definitely is i love the way in singularity trap they turned the uh, radio discussions into well radio uh conversations you know they had people who sounded like they were talking over a walkie-talkie it was a nice touch 
So let's talk about the singularity trap then. So this is the more recent work. Yeah, it was the first one I did after uh, finishing the Bobbers. And and what is the uh, the high level version of it? Um, a guy joins a mining cooperative, um, basically buys a share in a mining ship, and goes off to do asteroid mining. He discovers some ancient alien technology that was uh, that is. Um, attached to an asteroid and he actually accidentally triggers the technology. Uh, it starts to change him. And among other things, he finds himself with an alien computer in his head. Uh, the computer has a, uh, an agenda that's not necessarily good for humans. And, uh, Ivan, the protagonist has to figure out how to, uh, balance things so that humanity doesn't get destroyed. And it's only one book or it's a series as well? It's a single book. Uh, some people have said that they'd like to see a sequel, which I think is interesting. If, if I do write a sequel, I think it probably is going to involve um, destruction or near destruction of the earth. Because that's the way, that, you know, the story went. <laughs> if, if the arts show up, it's not going to be good. My wife showed up. Um, so then, uh, and then, so then, then once that's done, you're working on the fourth and fifth books for the Bobberverse. Any other ideas in the works? Um, well, I've got the, the two books of the Bobberverse, which are the next thing out. And then I'm going to do Earthside, um, which is the sequel to Outland. And that will complete my current contractual obligations. And then I am free to do whatever I want. Um, I've got no, now it's the dog, got no lack of ideas. I have a, a prompts, a story prompts list that's about a, at about 150 items now. Oh, really? Oh, that's amazing. I, I'd love to hear how you do that. How does that work for you? Right? So you've got a phone and you... Voice recorder. Every time I have a random idea, no matter where I am, I just pull up the voice recorder record one or two sentences. And then at some point I go through all my voice recordings and jot them down. Some of them are very thin. Some of them are very thin ideas. Maybe they'll just be a short story. If I ever start writing short stories. Um, but some of them are good for a novel. Um, yeah, it's, I, I have something very similar. I don't do mine in, as a voice recording, but mine, that's a pretty good idea though. Um, mine are just, a, I have like in, I have a text document and whenever an idea occurs to me for a for a video, I will write down that. And there is a list. It's probably two, yeah, probably two hundred, three hundred ideas, you know, yeah. in the list. And and yet most of them are unworkable. Uh, we have the same thing for astronomy cast episodes. Most of them probably too complicated, yeah. right? But it's you know, I it's nice to spend some time, and even like spending time expanding them or thinking them through a little more deeply and just starting to see where, where that can percolate. Cause some of those ideas can be merged together or come into some other project that you're, that you're working on. Yeah. Or even if you're, when you're trying to flesh out an idea and even if it's not working, it may segue off in a different direction that will work better. Uh, I think it's really Brad, wasted. Brad McGashett asks, Dennis, what excites you the most about exploring space in the near future? everything <laughs> i mean you know I, I i'm an amateur astronomer i'm a trekkie i'm uh you know a, a science uh fan um just get it get out there you know no matter how we have to just get out there i'm i'm really glad for spacex and and musk and all that stuff and the dog wants to play yeah <laughs> <laughs> and uh <laughs> Well, I'll give you. I I, I know uh, you're you're sort of busy with a vacation. I'm going to give you like another minute or so, and then uh, I'll let you uh, head off and uh, and play with your dog. Um, so with uh, Outland, um, it's specifically going through uh, Audible. Is there a book version, or it has to be Audible? Well, my contract contracts uh, with Audible specify that they get a four month exclusive. So the text versions will always come out four months after the Audible version. Right. Outland will be out September 16th 
in ebook and paperback. Okay, great. So, and then at some point we'll be able to see the rest of the ball books. I can't wait for that. Um, uh, what uh, What is the best way for people to follow what you're working on? Um, I'm most active on Twitter. I am. I I do announcements on Facebook, but they tend to be fewer and farther between, and I guess a little more formal. Um, so uh, yeah, Twitter, Facebook. Yep. Uh, Dennis underscore e underscore yelling Instagram Instagram. Yeah, but, I, and I have a blog. But yeah, and your blog. But yeah, uh, Dennis underscore e underscore Taylor. Yeah. And uh, I will follow you. There we go. Can't believe I wasn't following you already. Uh, cool. Well, um, so great to have you uh, hang out with us today again. Uh, I don't think you. Uh, maybe you do know how much people have enjoyed uh, the Boboverse books and and all of your writing. I know a ton of the people listening to this are are gigantic fans, and the ones who who aren't yet will be when they get a chance to read the books in in uh, in print or definitely give them a shot on audible because hearing those voices really makes it so great. I highly recommend it. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Um, and, uh, have fun with the, with the dog and the next books. Thanks. Oh, and, uh, check out fans of the Bobaverse on Facebook. It's a user group that is fans of the Bobaverse. That really freaked me out when I found out about it. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. All right. Thanks Dennis. All right. Thank you. Uh, you just got to close the window. Yeah. Just... There we go. All right. Uh, so I figured I'd stick around for another 15 minutes and hang out with you. Hang uh, out with any specific questions. Uh, just to give you an update, we just posted a new QA um, today. So I hope you got a chance to see that. Uh, we've got another episode all about the new plans to go to the moon 2024 that's going to be coming out uh, tomorrow. I hope it's it's ready. I think it'll be coming out tomorrow. Um, and then we're working on another episode for next week that's going to be about uh, hard to explain. Uh, I haven't come up with a title for it yet, but the gist is that life can handle being in space. So there was a really interesting experiment that was put onto the International Space Station called uh, Expose-R and it was designed to hit up uh, various life forms to really extreme conditions, essentially vacuum of space. And they put them in various Mars conditions, but also space conditions. They're really testing out panspermia. And so I had a chance to read the paper. I really enjoyed it. And I will be uh, posting information about that. So if anyone has any uh, questions for me, I would love to take them. Uh, Dr. Ed Elcott says, hey, Fraser, how are we going to solve our helium shortage? Obviously, with fusion, right? Uh, we're going to be fusing hydrogen, producing electricity, and uh, that's going to be creating helium as an output, and we'll have lots of helium. Done. Solved it for you. I, I can't think of any problem with that plan, except for maybe the uh, difficulty of creating fusion. But it'd be weird. Wouldn't it be weird if... There you go. Tardigrades don't care. Uh, wouldn't it be weird if we went with, um, we did fusion just to create helium because we have no other way to get at it? That would be that would be pretty funny. Um, let's see. So yeah, hit me with some other questions if you want, or I can also just wrap up the live stream. Your choice. It's all you. Um, that's great. I had a couple of people who have commented, and I, I can't think of a way to solve this problem. I had a couple of people comment that when uh, I have like blank spots during the live stream, of course, when they're listening to it as a podcast, they f sort of think that it's over. And I apologize. So I don't know what the solution is to that. Some kind of background audio or something, which sounds crazy. But um, but I do have to sort of think because the whole thing is done live. So 
Um, okay, well, you know what? I think uh, we're – there you go, Brad McGashit. Uh, do you think 2024 will happen? Uh, no, I don't think 2024 will happen. Now, that said, so, so you're referring to do I think that human beings will set foot on the moon by 2024 as announced as part of the Artemis Project? And I – and literally this is what tomorrow's video is about – and let me first say that I'm not an aerospace engineer. I don't work for NASA. I am not uh, knowledgeable to that level. All I am is a space journalist, someone who has been reporting on delays and changes of goals for 20 years. So, so that's the expertise that I bring to the table, not the specific um, knowledge about whether or not it's possible. Um, so my, in my experience, that complicated pieces of technology done for the first time tend to have delays and they tend to go over budget. And so to hit that 2024 deadline, everything's got to go exactly right. The first launch of the Space Launch System in 2020 uh, has to go right. It has to send an, an uncrewed vessel out to beyond the low Earth orbit of the Earth. Uh, then you've got to send a second one that's going to have crew on board, and they're going to go and redo Apollo 8. And that's just going to be one, you know, the second time the Space Launch System launches, it's going to take a team of astronauts out beyond the moon and back. Uh, wow, right? And then the third launch, and then and then the next launch, you're going to, you're going to launch part of the Deep Space Gateway that's going to have some interesting new technology, like a solar electric engine on board. And then the third launch of the Space Launch System is that it's going to return the astronauts to the station, or bring the astronauts to the station, and then they're going to use a privately built lunar lander from some partner, like Blue Origin, and land on the moon. And then take off again, return to the gateway, and then come back to Earth. So is all of that possible? It's absolutely possible, right? It's just a lot of moving parts to get it done by 2024. And if anything goes wrong, if the Space Launch System, oh, I don't know, takes longer, if the Gateway Module, I don't know, takes longer, um, if any of these parts take longer or go a little uh, off plan, then you don't hit 2024. So 2028 feels like a more reasonable deadline. And then the other big thing is the amount of budget. They're going to be looking for probably $5 billion in additional budget per year. And that's going to be hard to push through Congress. So I think that it's one thing to want to try to do it. It's another thing to actually be able to pull it off. Uh, and yet, you're going to see both SpaceX and Blue Origin with their plans to be able to take spacecraft and possibly even people to the moon. And then, of course, there's going to be the Chinese. So uh, I think that that is that's sort of what I think we're looking at is, is my gut, really, right, says maybe. <laughs> I don't know, but my gut says maybe. All right. Next question. Uh, Atlas walked away. If we never get fusion mastered, will harvesting from the lunar surface be the only reasonable source of helium? Uh, well, I mean, the, the moon is going to be a source of helium-3, which is going to be a thing that I don't think we can easily make. Maybe it can. But um, uh, but getting it from the moon, I mean, there's not very much of it mash into the lunar regolith. It's going to take a pretty significant mining effort on another world. And to get that stuff back to Earth... I think getting fusion going here on Earth is going to be the more reasonable, more cost-effective method of getting that helium. Just stop buying balloons. Larry Beckham, do we know how many of the 37 launches is a non-reusable booster? Um, so there was a, man, Ars Technica, um, Eric Berger, again, I've mentioned before, my favorite, probably my favorite space journalist, uh, he got the scoop on the in the, the the inside plans from NASA on exactly how they're going to be building out the station and sending humans to the moon and all of the trips down to the to the moon then by 2028 and there was going to be uh, dozens of, of launches listed out in that so I highly recommend go to Ars Technica look for uh, Eric's new story and he goes into all of the details 
I don't know which of them are going to be non-reusable boosters. Um, we're, I, I'm going to wait for NASA to actually publish that document before I report on it. I was thinking of making that the sequel to tomorrow's episode. Like tomorrow's episode is 2024. Here's the plan quickly. And then when this document came out from, from Eric, I was like, oh, okay, that would be a good second part to really go into the details of all the different pieces that are going to come together. And I may still do it, but I want to wait for a bigger document that I can dig into and people who are, will be willing to go on the record to talk to me about their plans as opposed to right now uh, a, a leaked document, one picture from a leaked document. So if anyone at NASA wants to share me, share with me the, uh, the detailed plans to getting back to the moon by 2028, I would love to do a video on it. Just let me know. Just reach out, FraserCain at gmail.com. Neil Yu asks, first to the moon, the BFR or spaceship or Orion? Well, neither. Okay, so, so the spaceship uh, from SpaceX is designed to go to land on the moon. And he had originally, SpaceX had originally said that they were going to sell a uh, lunar orbit to a rich Japanese entrepreneur. And I think that's fallen through because apparently he's broke. But the uh, the starship starship spaceship oh my god yeah um, should be able to do this the starship should be able to do this um, as part of its mission profile but again we are still in a bunch of rocket engines attached to a aluminum or stainless steel water tank water tower right it is we are a far far away from a fully reusable rocket to the scale that that spacex has been talking about um orion is not designed to go to the moon orion is designed to go to the gateway and then people will go from the gateway down to the surface of the moon again a lot of moving parts here so what do i who do i think is going to set foot on the moon first i think I think it'll be NASA's method, but it won't happen in 2024. I think they will they will continue to try to get that that mission architecture done and they will have it done by 2028. So I that's my guess. Someone is going to land a, a NASA astronaut is going to set foot on the moon by 2028. There will be 4 years of delays. Um, because I think even if they don't get the increased budget, I think this is the new architecture that's going to be moving forward from this point on. And so that's what I think is going to happen. And then I think you're going to see that gives us like eight years for SpaceX to perfect the Starship, which is about the time frame that it took them to get the Falcon Heavy going. And at the same time, we're going to see Blue Origin come out with uh, uh, right out of the gate with both their new Glenn and their and they're with their new rocket system. So that's it. I'd say 2028, it's going to be NASA first, and then really quickly around that time, you'll see probably the Chinese, someone, some wave from Blue Origin, and some wave from SpaceX all at the same time. That's my guess. Go ahead. David Sims, thank you so much for the donation. I really appreciate it. Kyle Carmichael is saying China in 2026. We should really do a, um, a pool, right? That'd be fun. If someone wants to work out a pool, I would be glad to promote it, where we all get to pick a, a day, a week, an hour, a minute, and then we'll ride it and see how long it takes till someone actually does hit foot on the moon. And what country? And then, I don't know, someone gets the bragging rights for getting it done. Eric one, do I agree with NASA's architecture? Yeah, I mean, again, not a rocket scientist, just a space journalist. I think that... I think that their method makes sense in that you you launch the gateway and it's going close to the moon and you've got this nice stable platform that is safe for astronauts to go to. And then all you have to do is move from the gateway down to the surface of the moon and then back up to the gateway. It seems like a like a less of a challenge than doing the whole stack in one launch as they did with the Apollo mission. So I like... I like that architecture, and I like that because then you you do go to stay. You build this station that is outside of the Earth's atmosphere, 
out of low Earth orbit, and you have to work through the technologies of it. And it's something that we need to do. We need to deal with the radiation environment. We need to deal with the distances, the communication distances. There's a lot of challenges. And so it's worth doing that. And yet also, you want somewhere to go. You want to use it as a platform to go to whatever is the next step. So I think that's that's the way to go. All right, uh, we've reached the end of the hour. Again, thanks to Dennis Taylor for taking the time to chat with us today. Uh, that was so much fun. Uh, man, again, read his books and or listen to his books if you're an Audible uh, listener. Uh, they're some of the most entertaining science fiction that I have heard, I think, in my life. I would definitely put them in my top ten. So uh, definitely do it. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks to the mods for uh, watching the chat. Thanks for watching and uh, new video dropping tomorrow. So stay tuned. See you later. Shut it down on this one.